Storie Libere Presents Sanyas is a way of living your life in total danger. What do I mean when I say that Sanyas is to live in danger? I mean living in the moment without the past. The past makes your life comfortable because the past is known, familiar. It puts you at ease. But your life is never the past. It's the present. The past represents what no longer is and life instead what is now. Life is always known and all your knowledge comes from the past. Trying to live the present through the past is the coward's path. It's sheer calculation. Sanyas instead means escaping the prison. Through the years, many have attempted to escape the prison Osho speaks of. Some have abandoned everything, sold their house, said goodbye to friends and relatives, sacrificed their lives to the cause to follow the great guru. And as we know, many have left their children or chosen to bring them along, binding them to childhoods that were often confused and without conventional parenting. But the ones we've spoken of so far aren't the only stories. There are mothers who, for different reasons, because of a certain peculiar awakening or limited economical availability, or even more simply, because of the other parent's opposition, preferred not to involve their children fully in the decision to become sannyasin. They decided not to leave and to try and follow the master's teachings from here. Here, from the society that made them feel different and which they would have happily fled. It's true that, even if they didn't choose to move to India or Oregon, they remained sannyasins anyway. That is, they attended the communes scattered around Europe, and they had houses which celebrated Osho. And their children? Even if protected by the decision to remain in a more conventional context, breathed in their parents and often their houses' inner revolution. Suddenly, in their lives, there was a picture of a man with big eyes, which looked over everything. There were different clothes from those other adults wore. There were rituals no one else could be seen attempting, as if they were devotees of a strange religion that wasn't taught in schools and no one knew anything about. It's what happened to Massimo too, who was never sannyasin, but knows well what it means to be one. This is Roberta Lippi. I write for TV, radio and the web. You are listening to Soli, a journey into the memories of children who grew up in Osho's communes between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. 
Today, we talk about Massimo, who never became Sanyazin, but who lived through his childhood and youth with a mother devoted to Osho. My mum became Sanyazin around 1983, at the age of 33. In that time, she was divorcing my father because she changed the way she saw life. When she began to read Osho's earliest books, which my uncle had lent her, she literally fell in love and began to change her life. She had two young children, myself, I was around six or seven, and my brother, who was about four or five. Soon afterwards, she met Francesco, her current husband, who she's lived with for many years, all through that peculiar period that lasted from 1983 to 1990, when Osho died. For Massimo's mother too, as for those whose stories we've already heard, infatuation began by word of mouth. Someone knew Osho up close and now can't live without him. My uncle and aunt began reading Osho's books and going to Pune. At the time, of course, there was no internet. Television and newspapers weren't talking about this yet. So there were these books going around. And in the earliest 80s, there, there probably weren't even any VHS cassettes, which around 1985 became a kind of weekend ritual. Yes, the videotapes. The ones with Osho's speeches. Those which allowed Sanyazins far away from him to follow his teachings and thoughts, those on which his books were eventually based. But let's take a step back. Let's imagine how, suddenly, a child's life can change through the icons which the movement brought with it. Because we need to remember the houses of the Sanyazins, the communes, were full of pictures of Osho. Things change, clothes change, and that bearded man becomes like a distant relative, a kind of venerated grandfather you've never met. He was almost a family friend, because the houses of the Sanyazins, ours too, were papered in pictures of Osho in almost every room. My house changed the moment my mother divorced. We moved, and from... Udine, we went to Bergamo. And our house was full of pictures of Osho. My mum and Francesca were almost always wearing these purple-red clothes. To me and my brother, it was almost normal. We noticed something wasn't right when maybe our school friends came to the house and asked, who is that man? But why? And we obviously always had to explain or attempt to explain with our own words with what we'd understood of what was happening. Usually we tried to play it down when they asked us, why does your mum want to call herself Achambo, her spiritual name? I usually said, oh, nothing. It's a nickname my family use and tried to get it over with as quickly as possible. Now we can get back to the videotapes because as we said before, Massimo and his brother also had to endure listening to Osho's speeches, which, as we have said, were not the kids' favourite moment. 
questi sannyasi nella, nella casa di qualcuno. All these sannyasins met up at someone's house and listened to Osho's speeches. I remember that in those moments, my brother and I really couldn't put up with all the waiting. Often we were brought along. Maybe we stayed with the other children or with some adults who'd agreed to keep us busy. But as a matter of fact, we were accompanying her. So we went to the Osho centers. At that time, we went to the one in Bergamo. But it was always really boring for us because I saw this man who spoke in such a strange way. I didn't know what he was saying. Obviously, it was all in English. I wasn't interested at all. It was just a constant presence in those years, and I didn't really give much thought to it at the time. And so, for those of us who were little, it was all quite natural. It wasn't very traumatic at all. It was more that we had to go out and find ourselves in a world that was so much different in those years. Indeed, because the greatest difficulty for Massimo wasn't so much accepting a mother who was different from the others and the series of rituals tied to the movement, but rather having to measure himself against the world outside and with the image that world had of his family. Also because my mum, having recently separated from my dad, had to work all day long and my brother and I went to a nun's school. I remember the nuns, who always knew everything, of course. They thought of us as poor children of a degenerate mother who followed the cult of a perverted guru who you didn't hear much about, but that the press was anyway beginning to talk about. A documentary had come out with some meditation scenes, a dynamic meditation, done by stark naked people who danced and, well, it looked like an orgy. <laughs> I mean, you have to imagine, this was the 1980s and it was still really shocking. There still are very shocking images, but anybody who knows anything about Osho meditation knows that, that that's just the dynamic meditation you can do, with clothes as well. In those years, many of the meditation techniques were taken a bit more intensely, more strongly. During those years, the press certainly wasn't speaking well of Osho. The documentary Massimo remembers is the famous, scandalous 1979 movie Ashram in Pune, Bhagwan's Experiment, a documentary on meditation techniques featuring men and women beating each other up, tearing their clothes in a padded room. A few people were wounded and traumatized during those years, and the movement had to find a solution and reconstitute itself under the name Neo Sanyazin. In 1983, the year Massimo encountered Osho's world, the master had already moved to the commune of Rajnishpuram, Oregon, the place in which, among other things, he began collecting Rolls Royces. The press found it easy to label him, 
They looked at him with extreme suspicion, and they thought of him and his followers as an army of promiscuous hippies who had little to do with spirituality. And so Bhagwan was the guru of sex. Bhagwan was the Rolls-Royce guru. And obviously, all sannyasins were seen in a very bad light. I didn't suffer much from this prejudice. Perhaps I suffered the most from having parents that were different from those of other children. There's also one thing which is quite important. I, I had a sannyasin mum who was with a sannyasin partner, and my brother and I lived with them. But I also had a dad who was quite a traditionalist with a lot of common sense, and I'm pretty sure that in those years he was scared by Osho. And so we lived on the one hand with my mum in that context, and then during the weekend, when we were with my grandparents or my dad, we went back to normal life. And so we weren't recognized as sannyasin children because we were normal children. And then we had our friends and, well, you didn't talk about those things at school because, well, we were all too young. We were, you know, tranquil children. We didn't lack for anything. The nuns of our school knew of our background and Sometimes they did snipe a bit about it. In the end, Massimo lived through that time happily. It was normal to him. What perhaps embarrasses him the most is that, being a very shy child, it was hard to measure himself against the directives given to the sannyasins, who, let's remember, always lived with a sort of euphoria towards life, often without reason. My mum, like many sannyasins, uh, was always smiling in that period. She was always joyful. Uh, it was a joy that was sometimes a bit forced, if you ask me. And this thing that she got dancing every time the music started, obviously it didn't always happen everywhere, but when it did happen, it was an embarrassment, especially for me, because I was a little bit older than my brother. You could recognize a sannyas in a mile off. They had a certain way about them, sometimes ostentatious. They often used the word energy and the word inner. They had a number of terms that they used a lot, and a lot of gestures that were also pretty stereotypical. When they met, they had long hugs, and they got breathing really deeply. And of course, my brother and I had noticed such things, and we teased these sannyasins a lot. We teased my mum about these things. We also helped her understand that these things were too much that they went beyond the teaching of Osho. And even now we joke about this kind of behavior. When I see my aunt, who is still in Sanyazin as well, I hug her and I don't let go for at least 30 seconds after taking at least three deep breaths. <laughs>
Massimo remembers that time with great irony and self-awareness. Unlike many other children, he was never brought by his mother to India or Oregon because she went when he was on holiday with his father. She didn't tell us very much about what went on. She told us something in the years to follow. She never took us with her because I think she didn't think we were the right age to go to those places. But also because my father would never have allowed it. Massimo and his brother, though, often live in European and Italian communes, which their mother regularly attends, not just in Udine, the city he came from and where the mother had opened a meditation centre, but also in Bergamo, where the family moved, Milan, which had one of the most active communes, Miasto, where the most famous Italian commune endures, and Cologne, one of the most important Sanyazin centres at the end of the 80s. For some time, my mum had been thinking about moving us to the Milan commune. I think that my dad intervened to stop her there too. Soon after, the Milan commune would close anyway. But going there, I have some memories of what happened. Nothing particularly striking, but there were, of course, meditations at all hours of the day, and I remember there was already a lot of attention was being paid to nutrition, which in the 80s was a completely new thing. I remember many children wearing sannyasin clothes and the mala, but my brother and I didn't feel that they were very different from us. We played together, there was no need to ask why are you a sannyasin when I'm not, neither for us nor for them. So it was always a lot of fun, because the sannyasin were always happy people anyway, inquisitive people. And for me and my brother, it was a kind of parallel universe to the one we lived in every day at school or, or in the park with the other children of our age. The Milan commune Massimo speaks of is an important case in the history of the city. It was born from the ashes of Macondo, the cultural community founded by Mario Rostagno, which the Osha sympathizers had already attended, and which closed down after only 40 days over an inquiry into light drugs. Rostagno was in jail for a few months, and then handed over his project to Andrea Majid Valcarenghi, founder of the magazine Renudo, who, like Rostagno, had become sannyasin after a journey to India. The Milan commune was called Vivek, like Osho's partner, and it was in the Moscova quarter, in Via Castel Fidardo 7, on the corner with Via San Marco. The Milan experiment was active from 1978 to 1986, and it regularly hosted around 60 people who, as in all the communes, lent their skills to community service. There were electricians, builders and carpenters. The commune had the first organic restaurant in the city, but also a hairdresser's, a laundry service, rooms to meditate and practice yoga. And the people who went there were mostly rich, upper-middle class. 
I wonder whether Massimo didn't want to be like the Sanyasin children he met there. As had happened to Venu, who wanted his mala at all costs. But Massimo lived halfway between Osho's communities and the normal life of the children of his age in the 80s. How did he come to terms with the need children have to identify with something and create their own identity? He had to make a choice. Probably, if I lived in the commune, I would have wanted to be like all the other children too. Just like for me, it was important to be like the children who were outside the commune. Because of this, sometimes I suffered, you know, because of the difference between my parents and the parents of other children. I'm sure I never wanted the mala, which I didn't particularly like as an object. And I must say that the picture of Osho was a bit annoying because it was everywhere during my childhood. So I never wanted, uh, neither me nor my brother, to become Sanyazin and we were never asked. Massimo, unlike other children, never had to undergo the unasked-for suffering of a long or short separation from his parents. In this, his mother was almost certainly very important, as was his father, who with his prohibitions tried to protect his children from something that failed to inspire his trust. Some children may have lived those years with great difficulty, but, but not me, because I had a mother who always put her children before everything. Despite her immense love for Osho, my brother and I always came first. When we could stay with my dad, of course she was much freer. Um, when we were with her, there were these kinds of nurseries or kindergartens for the children who could wait while the parents meditated. But it didn't bother us. Apart from one time when I think it was one of the first meditations my mum attended in, in Bergamo, and I remember I literally went through a glass wall. Probably because I was angry about something. I wanted my mum. My mum was in this Buddha hall meditating and, well, I decided to go in straight through the glass wall shattering it completely and interrupting them. I have a very clear memory of my mother rinsing clean my bloodied wrists because I'd hurt myself. This incredibly strong image brings back to mind another one, that of little Tim Guest, of whom we spoke of at the beginning of our journey, and his standing on tiptoes desperately trying to find his mother in the crowd of Sanyazins who all looked the same. He brings back to mind that intolerable loneliness. And I feel relief thinking of Massimo and his story. I am relieved he stayed here. For me, the fact of having had Sanyazin parents is a privilege. 
because they gave me the chance to to live through a quite unique period in history. That may seem a bit of an exaggeration, but this movement, which so many people completely ignored, was revolutionary, and it helped open up people's minds. And so, for me, having lived from within certain moments in that time, and at the same time seeing from outside the way people spoke of it, allowed me to understand the way misinformation can grow. And I actually feel quite lucky because I lived through something so unique. I ask Massimo what he thinks today of the movement and on what happened halfway through the 80s when Rajnishpuram collapsed under its own mistakes and the communes were closed. What great opportunity was missed by these people because they built something wonderful, something really revolutionary and then they destroyed it, I think, with their own hands. And I feel sorry that it went this way because I'd like to go to Oregon now to visit a place that is an evolution of what happened in 1985-86. I read several of Osho's books a few years back and sometimes I listen to his speeches on YouTube those same speeches which I couldn't stand as a child. And now, of course, I can understand what they mean. I still think of him as an enlightened being who gave so much, who contributed so much to people's evolution in general. I use the word enlightened because, well, it's one of those recurring words in the sannyasin vocabulary, which make so little sense to me in real life. He had attained a, a very high level of understanding. He obviously went very close to the edge, and he was probably a little bit careless. An enlightened being isn't an omniscient person, so what happened in the movement, all the mistakes made, uh, could probably have been avoided if he'd intervened. I'd like to think he didn't because this could also be a teaching for the sannyasins. Today, many use the very same words to justify what happened in Osho's communes. The adults' memories, especially those who were brought by the movement to commit acts they wouldn't have otherwise committed. Violent acts, illegal acts, mutilations or deprivations. Ask themselves whether it wasn't all part of Osho's design to allow them to truly know themselves. It's a perverse pattern in which all questions are right and the answers are the ones we like to give ourselves. So long as we don't get hurt, and no, there is no such thing as a right answer. Will it ever be possible to draw the sums of what happened? We'll try and do that together. This is Roberta Lippi, and I look forward to having you back for the next episode of Soli, here on storielibere.fm.
The international version of Soli has been translated by Edoardo Rialti. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Editorial Supervisor Guido Guenci and Chiara Tagliaferri. Post and Sound Design Era Zero.